it is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Welcome to Screen Talk Anywhere. It's a weekly podcast. I'm Eric Cohn, joined as always by Ann Thompson. And Ann, we've got some top 10 lists to discuss. But before we do that, we've got some awards to discuss because there's been quite a few nominations with the Globes, the Critics' Choice of the over the past week. Then VR also announced its winners. So let's get into that, first of all, because I know, obviously, that everything nominated for the Golden Globes is an obvious best picture front runner because the Globes predicts everything, right? No. <laughs> <laughs> so, it, you know, you've had the AFI 10 best, which is a mix of industry professionals, and um, and they gave Banshees a special award because it wasn't eligible. But the the lists are sort of are, are lining up. You know, the AFI, the MBR, the, the, the Globes. The Globes is this new group made up of like 103 new voters from outside of the US who aren't actually members, but they get to vote, you know? So, and and it's weird. Whatever. It sort of feels like a return, a slightly muted return to normal with the Globes. But remember, they're really not uh, predictive. Uh, it may be that with more voters from outside the country, they could be slightly more predictive of what the Academy would do. But I think the Critics' Choice Awards are really the most predictive because well, there's there 600 of them right i bet I, it is worth noting I and mean, the globe's coming back to tv putting these movies on tv and potentially some major speeches happening that get talked Those about are that where matters the influence actually occurs as opposed to they're influential they're not predictive yeah. right there's a difference that's a good distinction to make Somebody yeah. in this list will get a boost. The, the New York film critics are influential, but not predictive. Oh, yeah. And the fact that they actually voted for <laughs> Raja Mooley yeah. is, is fantastic. I cheered. That I, was I, awesome. I, I was in the room. It was cool to see that happen. I, I'm not supposed to reveal all the vote tallies, but it was fascinating to see how that happened. And also to see that RRR is nominated for international here, even though it's not, it, does, it wasn't not, the Indian submission means right. that you know, there's still, yeah, yeah for the Globes. Foreign, they have their own foreign foreign list so so they went with uh banshees with eight um and fablemans with five babylon with five everything everywhere all at once with six so one of the things that's going on that i find fascinating is everything everywhere all at once and uh rrr are picking up a lot of momentum and people are rooting for them and excited for them but we have to keep in mind still that the mainstream of the Academy is not necessarily going to respond to a comedy, a broad, chaotic comedy. That or whatever the hell you'd call this thing. I mean, it's sort of unclassifiable, but it's, it's had a long life. Everywhere. So it's got to be seen. That's the most important thing. But we've, you know, again, in a theater is better than at home. And then um, RRR, you know, some people respond to, to this kind of, of crazy Indian cinema and some people don't, you know, I mean, cinephiles understand what an extraordinary leap it is. But um, that's not necessarily true of executives, uh, you know, at Sony 
or, or well, but I, I feel like when people see RRR, it's been a while since we've had a big spectacle win best picture anyway, right? I mean, it, it, the question is, well, what is it that they're rewarding? In this case, it's it's not a traditional Hollywood spectacle. So it's about kind of stepping out of your, your sense of familiarity That's about what, what like that is. I'm beginning right. to think that the directors are the most likely group to they, they'll Yeah. And you've seen um, people like Adam McKay who are like super fans and very vocal about it. So yeah, and I and I think they're more willing to recognize the kind of imagination and and daring do you know that that was involved as they were with Fury Road, as they were with Life of Pi. You know, exactly. these were the examples of movies that stepped out of the box and made you know, uh, you know, wowed people um, without being you know classic Oscar movies. Right. So, the uh, where else do we want to go here? Well, the well, I, are really the most predictive. And the reason for that is that they, in the last 27 years, have predicted 15 Oscar Best Picture winners, 22 mm -hmm. director winners, 18 actor, 15 actors, 17 supporting actor, 19 supporting actors. So they really, that's the group I look at most closely. And in a way, if you read the tea leaves of the Critics' Choice nominations, and of course they had six categories for actors, they had 11 best pictures because they had a tie. You know, they have a they have extra categories too to, the, to sort of bump up the count, but you can sort of read where some of the weaknesses may lie if you if you take that. Those okay. Well, so we have a very strong showing, as you say, for everything everywhere with 14 nominations, but you also have Avatar in the mix. You also have Fablemans in the mix. So where, where do you see weaknesses uh, in well, terms of all you didn't that. get Woman King in Best Picture, but you got it in Ensemble and Viola Davis and, and other places you didn't, you know, um, the, 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 uh, it's a it's a question of of recognizing who you know the the Golden Globes put Anna de Armas in. Obviously, Netflix was very effective, you know, in their marketing. They got Eddie Redmayne. You know, these were oh, yeah. going to happen, and they didn't happen with the Critics' Choice Awards. Um, Glass Onion did better with the Golden Globes. <laughs> Makes <laughs> a lot of sense. So, so it, you know, it's it's a it's a it's a you know it's a comedy, um, and so it, you know there's a whole other set of of categories to to play. Yeah, with. I mean that is um, one good thing about good is relative, but about the Globes actually creating space for comedy. I mean that White Noise gets a nomination for a comedy. I'm I'm glad <laughs> that White Noise is still in the conversation. James Murphy's song, uh, "New Body Roomba," should definitely be in the conversation, but also cool to see that movie as a comedy so. i was a little surprised that babylon did as well with both groups as it did um i'm expecting i was expecting a lot of um uh craft nominations for babylon but uh margot robbie getting in there um now chances are she's the sixth slot and she won't make it at the oscars and of course, what's going to happen with Babylon right now, there's no Metacritic or Rotten Tomatoes to look at. The reviews haven't come out yet. I have a feeling the reviews will cut it down a few pegs before. Yeah, I mean, there's already a discourse around that movie that's pretty mixed, Absolutely. but there's also a lot of respect. I mean, a lot of people I've talked to, I'm sure you too, like they they pick apart certain things about the movie, but they also love certain aspects of it. And Absolutely. they always come back to it's loving Damien Chazelle. Yeah, yeah, they're like all about Chazelle. And that and there's almost like a permission to to be flawed that he gets in a way for taking this kind of wild swing. 
uh, yes. that they could and be rewarded. You want filmmakers to take a wild swing, but it helps if you have a hundred million dollar movie right. to keep the audience in mind. Sure. So this is falling in the category of Amsterdam or or uh, poten potentially Empire of Light, which but, is also flat. right. Well, it is funny that that Babylon has almost exactly the same running time as Avatar. So like they're competing about a minute. for screens over the holidays. <laughs> yeah, hilarious. You know, which is which is a weird thing. Very um, weird. Although one, I won't spoil it, but there's an avatar component to Babylon in the end that that uh, kind of links up this conversation and adds a, an element of irony to all this that people will know when they when they see it, if they see Babylon. So there's that to keep in mind too. Like that one is about kind of the roots of movie magic and the other is like a statement on where movie magic is today. So that's what that battle is truly. Um, well, we've talked about that stuff, but what we really are here to do is to share our top movies of the year, which year after year, we always come back to and find that we sometimes agree on more than we think we do, but also they diverge on certain things. So You've got your top 10. I've got my top 10. I've been fussing around with it. Special categories to add to your top 10? No, I will. I have three movies that didn't make the cut that in a year where I would do one of those longer lists that goes all the way up to whatever the year is, you know, 20 movies for 2020, 21 for 21. I would have a few more. So I can, I, I'm happy to note my runners up. Go ahead. Your but, honorable uh, mentions. What are they? Yeah. So, so there's, there's three. Uh, the first one being Avatar itself, which uh, I, I futzed around my top 10 a lot and I did not have a slot for a big blockbuster. And, you know, it's a curatorial process and finding that balance can be tricky where it's like you want almost these like representational slots on your list. Like there's going to put one big blockbuster to kind of capture the full year of movies. And I couldn't find that spot. But I did feel like Avatar was that movie, much more so than Top Gun, which just has not stuck with me, even though I, I enjoyed aspects of it. I Avatar. its merits without just, making it the best movie of the year. A hundred percent. And then also, similarly, RRR, I really enjoyed, but there were just other movies that I just felt belonged on this list. And the more that I looked at it, I didn't want to lose one just to acknowledge that RRR was a significant crossover kind of cultural moment for film culture that was really exciting to talk about. So it's worth a shout out. And then kind of wrapping all that together, Fablemans is a movie that to me is is sort of the best of the recent spate of movies about movies in the sense that it's so personal. And Better um, than Bardo? Well, I I really enjoyed Bardo and, and I am a Bardo booster, as it were. But I think Bardo isn't necessarily a, about making movies. Bardo is about... Um, being trapped between different kinds of uh, identities in a way. So that's a that's a, a very specific kind of distinction, at least from my standpoint. I don't yeah, know where, where I you understand. stand. But... No, but I was I was making it more about the personal movies about about the filmmakers. In other words, right. he makes there's a that too. But he's really a filmmaker. Well, there's that too. Yeah, but it's about something else entirely, in my estimation. Um, it's on Netflix though, as you pointed out earlier, and people should totally out, watch it. Came out. We should all. Everybody should. I, I want to see it again. I'm going to watch it on Same. Netflix. There's no question. Same. So there's three. There's three that I put in their sort of categories that I didn't to make more room on the top 10 list. So they belong on the top 10 list, but they're, they're given an their own space. So I have best animated film, the extraordinary Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio, uh, immersive, imaginative, clever, extraordinary. And then I have best documentary, the, all the beauty and the bloodshed, Laura Watrous's movie, uh, you know, incredibly sharp, 
shockingly complex and and ex I just think it's amazing. And then the best international film is All Quiet on the Western Front. It's got great acting and extraordinary uh, visual effects. It's a it's sort of like nineteen, but it's different and better in some ways. So having a best international film category in addition to your top ten, does that mean there aren't any other international there films? There is an international. There are some international. So those films. so those I transcend. Did not, I did not leave them out. <laughs> They they transcend the category, yeah. as it were. Gave me a little, just a just an extra slot. So you start with ten, then we'll come. Yeah, down we'll go one by one. So so my number ten, I went back and forth on this so much, but I did feel like it was worth including because After Sun is a movie that uh, has stuck with me and stuck in the conversation in a really remarkable way. I mean, there are shots in the film that I could see really clearly months after I saw the film. Obviously, deeply emotional and the great debut of the year by Charlotte Wells, but also there's just something about it where it's like a perfect synthesis of like performance and like cinematography. It's just a really clear form of, of intimate filmmaking that I just, I just adored. So that's, that's my number 10. That movie haunted me uh, and still does. And I, I recognize everything that's great about it, including Paul Nascal's extraordinary performance, which I'm hoping because of all the attention that After Sun is getting, could actually end up in the, the best actor race. We shall That's see. Shot. It's, a, it's in there. We shall for see. Sure. My number 10 is Ruben Ostlin's Triangle of Sadness, which I insist on celebrating, uh, even if it's uh, considered by some to be a, a gross out movie. It's his first English language film. It deserved the Palm d'Or. Um, and it it is a... Uh, it, 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 and it's being compared, I think, unfairly to Force Majeure and The Square. Uh, it, it is a different animal. And I put it more in uh, the same category as as The Menu or Glass Onion. The, all the, there's a spate of movies which are making fun of the rich. This one is the best. This one is the most brilliant, the most hilarious. But the, but the idea here is, is also that the filmmaking skill required to pull off, say, the throw-ups sequence um is extraordinary um and it took him six months to do that sequence yeah they shouldn't be comparing it to, to his other movies they should be comparing it to bunuel movies i mean it really is that it's kind like, of class yeah, set there the charm of the bourgeoisie yeah 100 exactly. so my number nine is apollo ten and a half which is a great kind of underdog story this year even though it's made by one of the great working American directors, Richard Linkletter. It's been a while since he was working at this level of satisfaction, but doing this like partly rotoscoped animated movie about a kid sort of imagining himself as part of the Apollo mission in the 60s is such a nice portal to all the themes he's explored well over the course of his career, childhood, uh, memory, passage of time. It's not even like a, a, a narrative. It's more like you're just like immersed in these memories narrated by Jack Black as the adult. It's just beautiful and, and um, and and fun, a little silly, but in a way that that's like very genuine, and, and more people should be talking about it. So, have you seen I, it yet? I have to catch up with that. Uh, I'm glad that you have something on your list that, someone, that a lot of people are probably going to have to uh, I know. catch up with. So, my next one is uh, the Woman King. Um, and it relies on Viola Davis as its engine, it, even though it's definitely. Uh, an action movie in many ways. It's a period film set in Africa um, and based on true stories uh, of this warrior clan that that uh, were made up of, of, of women. She is the 
uh, extraordinarily fierce leader, but she also, um, the, the movie also relies on her, uh, on, on, on the ensemble, which includes uh, Lashana Lynch and Fusum Mbedu. And I, um, I'm glad that this movie is it did it as well as it did at the box office. You know, Gina Prince Bythewood knows what she's doing, but I'm also glad that it's getting somewhere um, in the awards conversation. Although I am worried about it. Part of the conversation we were having earlier is that uh, Woman Talking, Woman King. Um, some of she said these are movies that are not always being embraced uh, by men, and uh, it's just a, an unfortunate case uh, there. Um, but I hope I hope people who haven't seen it yet uh, catch up with it, hopefully, in a movie theater. Screw the patriarchy, especially in award season. Always true. Um, my number eight uh, is a movie that I think is a great example of working within the system to do something totally original, and that's Nope. Uh, I've talked about it before, how it's like that. This is one of a handful of movies I bought a ticket to see in a theater this year in a, in a multiplex. I mean, I've, I've been to repertory screens and stuff, but I don't go to a ton of like AMCs uh, when a movie's out. And uh, and I had been on vacation when Nope screened and it was like such a blast to see something in a major multiplex like this. It was like about film history and about how we watch things and about how, you know, there, there's this sense of, of desire that that movies creates within us that that leads to the unknown and how dangerous that can be but also thrilling also it's basically you know a movie that that changes who the lead role is and and uh in a way that i think is kind of remarkable and 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 you know it has a feminist reading to it that i didn't see coming so uh there's just so much going on with nope and jordan peele continues to be one of the great directors working in Hollywood now because you just never know where he's going to go next. So very happy about the Great way movie. that. Goes. Absolutely. 100% support your choice there. Um, my next one is woman talking. Um, and I, I have to say that this movie marks perhaps the highest degree of difficulty of, of almost any movie this year. You could um, say avatar probably fulfills that too, but this is in a different way. How do you take eight religious, illiterate women and put them in an attic and have them debate their future? Um, they're all talking. They are. That's what the movie is. Women talking. Yeah. Marketing and, doesn't lie. And Sarah Polly, it's a testament to her talent. It's a testament to, to her ability to adapt the book and to um, direct this extraordinary cast that she was able to assemble. Um, and the movie really works. It hits hard. Uh, it, it, it shouldn't work, but it does. I really like this movie. I, I it would probably be somewhere on a longer list, and I have to say, it's I need to revisit it because I, the script is extraordinary. I mean, what I what I remember from my experience watching it was that you come out of it with a clear sense of who everybody is, and it's a very busy movie at the same time, which is is pretty amazing that she was able to do that. So. Um, hopefully people do reward it for that. And also Ben Wishaw holding his own in a, in a room full of women. You got to give him credit for that too. Cause usually it's the other way around with these things. Um, so my number seven is the greatest movie about a donkey since Ozard Balthazar. <laughs> Jersey Phil Massey's EO. Uh, it's a fun movie to talk about, right? Because it's like, I remember seeing this thing. It was in Cannes competition. I knew Skolomowski, obviously, but had no idea what this was. And then, you know, five minutes in, I was like, oh, it's another donkey movie. And then the more I watched it, I thought it's a really good donkey movie. I mean, the way in which it's framed, he used, I think it was eight donkeys 
to make the movie and the way in which he frames it from the donkey's perspective is very affecting. The emotion is there in a way that is like purely cinematic and it's not like an empty sort of diatribe about animal intelligence and, and how you should be a vegan or whatever. It really is about kind of, you know, what, what are the boundaries of human intelligence and how can we get past that to understand empathy for a creature like this in a way that I find to be also like surprising and funny and strange and poetic. And it's just a, it's just a great piece of filmmaking and everyone should I'm see it argue with you. and very theatrical too. I think it's a good, it's a good theatrical movie. We have a feature on the site about the six donkeys that star in the movie. It's a, uh, a great watch. Um, so my number seven is Living. It is earning kudos for Bill Nye, uh, the veteran British actor who is best known for his work in theater, if not love, actually. Um, and it, it, that, of course, his performance deserves all the kudos that it's getting. But uh, he plays an office drudge who uh, gets a terminal diagnosis and changes his approach to living. Um, but the other people who should get credit for this also are Kazuo Ishiguro, who adapted uh, Kurosawa's Ikuro, uh, the classic from 1953, and also the South African director, Oliver Hermanis, who directs this movie beautifully. Um, so they both should be taken seriously as well. So uh, this is, uh, if any of you have not caught up with it, uh, it's opening at the end of, of the month. It's a very sweet movie and also a good kind of like post-pandemic or, you know, whatever the stages that we're in, it, it captures that zeitgeist in a way of sort of like contemplating how much time you have and, and trying to figure out how to make the most of every moment in a way that's like very uh, unexpectedly touching because there's no fancy bells and whistles in that sense. Yeah. It's um, a small classic Sony Pictures classics movie. Yes, basically. yeah, they, they see that in it. Although there's a lot of movies this year that I think have that smallness to it and that's sort of what makes it them appealing, whether that's After Sun or EO. My number six has that too to, in a certain way and that's the Banshees of Anna Sharon. You know, I'm a, I'm a big Martin McDonough fan and I love the way that this movie synthesized his plays and, and the movies he's made to date. It has the scale of a play, but it's still got a, a sort of cinematic sweep to it because of the way the island looks. It's very lyrical. Uh, but Colin Farrell, Brendan Gleeson, top form, maybe their best performances ever. Um, it's just such a great chemistry between the two of them. And I love living in their world, even though it's a very kind of sad place. It's so well realized that you feel like you're there with them. In fact, second time I saw it was the opening night of the Philadelphia Film Festival. And my wife and I went out and had two pints of stout afterwards because we were just, we felt like we were, we wanted to keep <laughs> hanging out in, in a share and, you know, and, and hopefully, you know, seeing these guys around and making sure they're doing okay. So uh, yeah, I just, I just love that movie. It's so well done. It's so satisfying. You know, I do too. So you're going to, well, we will come back to it in a minute. <laughs> um, so RRR is my number six. And so I'm making room for the movie you did not have room for. Um, but it it is, uh, I can't not include it because the feats of daring do, the feats of imagination, coming up with the ideas, much less executing them uh, for these extraordinary, not just the extraordinary uh, sequences that actually make people in audience, make audiences in theaters stand up and cheer. I mean, it, it is so unusual that, that you would have a movie that would have that impact on people. And yes, he creates these sort of superhuman uh, characters who couldn't possibly do the things that they do in the movie, you know, jumping out of a truck with, you know, animals of every stripe um, and surviving, but it, it, he makes it work. 
and the dancing and the fighting and the swooping are all part of this extraordinary thing. One of the long movies of the year. Awesome. Yes, true. You don't learn that not to not to dance. There's like a million YouTube videos. <laughs> I want these things to get nominated so they can be on the Oscars. And I also want SS Rajamouli, you know, to get his just uh, rewards for this extraordinary thing. Yeah. So, although I'm not sure if he should be making a Hollywood studio movie. Because I know that's going to be that. I don't want him to do that. I yeah. want him to stay stay where he is and do another one even better than this. Yeah, well, with with new fans now, which is super cool and rare. My number five is also a movie that that is kind of wild and fun and launching a career to a new stage. We've already talked about it quite a bit this episode, and that's everything, everywhere, all at once. I've been a fan of the Daniels for a long, long time, followed their music videos. Uh, full disclosure, I went to middle school with their cinematographer, so I've been hearing a lot about them for a long time. But it's amazing to see that this kind of wild, reckless abandon approach to like narrative invention has yielded a movie that is both this and ambitious and this widely respected. And I think part of the reason is because even though it's got a lot of that kind of hip, cool stuff on the surface, it's got a real soulful core and it's very well written. And the Michelle Yeoh character in particular is so well realized that it's it's sort of bringing more people into a style that often can be sort of alienating to, to, to a lot of audiences. And that's very satisfying to me. And I found it very satisfying for those reasons as well. So it's a great movie. It's a fantastic movie. And, um, I will tell you that I listened, uh, I often listen to the uh, Script Notes podcast with John August and Craig Mazin. They're extraordinarily smart. And they interviewed the, the Quan, Daniel Kwan and Daniel Shiner. They, they, they interviewed them at great length about how they made this movie, how the music videos influenced their process, how they could even come up with all of this stuff and make it work. And I understand it now in a way that I didn't understand it before. So I highly recommend um, that podcast. My next one is uh, number five is Decision to Leave. So that is my Korean entry um, on my list. And it transcends the international film category. That's right. That's right. So even though it looks like it's an, an, a, a Hitchcockian exercise, this is a much more complex uh, ballet à deux, you know, between uh, two master actors uh, playing a detective and the suspect who's a femme, femme fatale. And they, uh, they are just extraordinary in this. This is original, masterful, uh, deliriously, gorgeously stylish filmmaking. Um, and if it's a little on the cold side, I'll take it. It, but I but I don't know if it's fun. I mean, it's still there is. People a, seem to think it is. I'm not sure where they're getting it. I, I mean, there's, there's a romance. There's yeah. heat there in the romance. The chapstick scene. I mean, come on. You know, he doesn't carry a gun, but he carries chapstick. I thought that was a great little <laughs> detail. You know, he said, and I don't know if you saw the interview I did. He said. Uh, to me that he'd love to see a, an English language remake because this is about there's language barriers in this movie, right. right. With somebody speaking Chinese and somebody speaking Korean. And he was like, well, what about if you could do it in an American version where you had like somebody who's, who's from Mexico who only sp who speaks Spanish better than English. And I was like, wow, how rare do you see a filmmaker like pitch their own English language remake, remake. <laughs> but for a really good reason. So I want to see that movie actually. Um, I don't think so there are any filmmakers who could pull off the, uh, there's, the movie changes its style as it moves from section to section and location to location. And there's all sorts of subtle 
clever things going on with the color scheme, you know, the way that he uses the camera. It it is it is I, I it 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 warrants repeat viewing. Let's just say that. Well, I have a very different kind of movie in, in my number four slot, uh, one that I think is also a singular vision, but uh, made way outside the system, and that's Beba. And this was on my list back when we did our, our top tens of the year so far in the middle of the year, but I think it's the kind of film that's worth reminding people about because it's it's very small scale and could be lost in the conversation of bigger titles, although I believe Tom Powers pushed it into the shortlist for Doc NYC uh, to keep it out there. And, and this is a, a great kind of personal essay film from an Afro-Latina filmmaker named Rebecca Hunt, who's uh, who's, uh, Brazilian uh, American and sort of goes to to Bard College and is trying to sort of reconcile her past with her present. She has a falling out with her parents uh, and uses a lot of archival footage to tell the story. It reminded me of Tarnation a little bit in a way. It's got this almost like dreamlike way of sort of meditating on identity that I hadn't seen someone try before. She's a really interesting director. She works with Carlos Regatis out of Mexico, and I think he's going to do some really amazing stuff, but but the the cinematic vision is very clear on this one. People should track it down. It's on Hulu, I think, because of no, Neil. I, uh, yeah. Thanks to your recommendation and Tom's, I did check it out. And um, the, the tricky thing that she does, it's set in the uh, Upper West Side of Manhattan in my old neighborhood, so there was a lot of affection I felt for the milieu that she was in. But at the same time, she is willing to reveal herself as a narcissistic artist. Right. Who, and there are reasons why her parents were justified, in my view, yeah. for falling out with her. It's very um, honest. I mean, incredibly she... selfish about her right. needs and, and wants. So, uh, but I, I understand um, that she, uh, she did something remarkable. Yeah, and I don't think she tries to to cover that up either. I mean, no, it's very, that's part of what makes it a good movie. Yeah, exactly. Um, exactly. So, so the the my number four is Tar, uh, Todd Field's masterwork, um, which relies on Kate Blanchett's performance as the composer uh, and the conductor, but uh, it's really a detailed portrait of an artist in crisis, uh, and and has one of the most extraordinary endings I've ever seen on a movie. One of the most unpredictable and brilliant uh, finales you could come up with. And, totally. and so uh, Todd Field does not disappoint. He really does. No. Everybody is meticulous. It's a very meticulously detailed, perfectly wrought movie. Uh, and I'm glad to see uh, it being uh, embraced to the extent that it has been. Yeah, I, I have more to say about that film. movie. But it, difficult in in all the right in the right kinds of ways, though I would say. My number three, speaking of difficult, is Funny Pages. I don't know if that's a movie you've had a chance to catch up with yet in. It's a movie I would love to get your re- reaction on, though I don't know if it's something you would absolutely love. It, the Safdies produced this. It's the first feature from Owen Klein, who uh, is uh, a really interesting character. He's made a few shorts before, um, but uh, you know he's, he's Kevin Klein and Phoebe Kate's son, so he's sort of born into showbiz in a way. He, he was a kid in Squid and the Whale. Uh, none of that that will prepare you for the the cringe comedy that he's made here about this uh, young kid who who basically wants to be like an alt comics uh, uh, writer like R. Crumb or somebody like that. And you know that's a kind of grotesque world. It it's it's got this gritty sixteen 
millimeter quality to it reminded me of clerks a little bit um with that that uh, gen x malaise and it goes to some really twisted places that i don't want to spoil but it has an energy to it an independent film energy which almost seems antiquated to to use that kind of term now because you know in the in the 824 neon world like what even is independent film these are big movies relative to something like this which is small scale rough around the edges but really satisfying in terms of what it captures about you know especially young men becoming the heroes of their own imagination and then completely screwing things up as a result of that so it's a great comedy of errors um and he should watch it i think you would you would appreciate in certain I ways check it out i will check it out so my number three is all too predictably avatar the way of water um you know i'm a james cameron fan um and what happens here is that he uses this enha enhanced uh facial performance capture, which is way beyond what he did on the first film. And so the difference here is that he gets real acting from these people. He gets close-ups from, from the actors and there's silent scenes where, where you can see the emotions going across uh, Kate Winslet's face or, or uh, Sam Worthington's face. And so he, that, that brings um, a level of drama and intimacy to the family uh, story that he's telling. Yes, it's a war movie. Yes, the machines come and destroy the environment. Yes, he's 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 putting in an animal rights agitprop story there with his with his whale creatures. Um, but finally, the reason so many people are saying that Avatar is better than the first one is because you can get up close to the emotions felt yeah. by these family members and and that's what really entertains us in the end the more i think about it sigourney weaver gives the performance of the year i mean for all the other kinds of performances we've talked about and i was watching this movie year old. Yeah. yeah knowing that there was a 72 year old playing this teenager and like it didn't you even as you know it you don't see it you know, you, you see a fully realized performance. So you think about what an actor has to do to behave like a teenager. So and they then, described you know. it on the set and they watched her, you know, transform. That's the thing that gets me is that the, the, the you know, the actors branch of the Academy or the, or the people at SAG, you know, they don't recognize performance capture. You know, they, they don't re see real actors behind these uh renderings that that weta digital does do but they're they're working with real actors and real performances yeah i liked how james cameron talked shit about um thanos like oh come on thanos you think thanos <laughs> has uh has anything on what we're doing here i mean no, keep up in the anti-chair not even close so my number two if you take the ava after out of avatar you're back to the movie we were just talking about which is of course tar, tar. I saw somebody did Avatar RR, which I thought was really cool. <laughs> um, but Avatar is is great in terms of what it's doing with the technology of movies. I think Tar is great for what it's doing with um, time in cinema because it it throws you into the the sort of rhythms of of this world. It's not like other Todd Field movies at all, which I thought was really interesting. You know, it's a director fully attuned to the specific movie he wants to make here, and it's incredibly satisfying in terms of all the different directions that it goes in. I mean, it's, the idea that it's almost it's almost got like a Frederick Wiseman type of quality to it, but it making that accessible to more people. I mean, even the people I've talked to who don't like tar 
still end up talking about it a lot. You know, Saint Omer is well, another movie some like that. I mean, we had about yeah. what his intentions were in terms of cancel culture. Uh, I think it's it's nuanced. Yeah, it opens up debates to interpretation. Yeah. I mean, there are people, I mean, there are some critics I love reading who hated it, like Amy Talbot and, and Richard Brody to some degree. Brody but... came back with a revision. <laughs> I mean, because look, the discourse just keeps building around that. I, you know that something has struck a nerve when people keep coming back and talking about it. I mean, you could parse the, the commercial challenges this movie faces in a separate conversation, but in terms of just like, you know, hitting a nerve as well at the box office as a movie like this could possibly do. Yeah. Word of mouth has been good. Capital letters. Yeah. People are excited to talk about it though. And and we do need more of these bold swings. And I do like also that it was a movie made for the theatrical experience like Avatar was, but a different kind of theatrical experience. Really it's an art house movie. And Todd, you know, uh, comes out of that world and is is in some ways making a movie to support the idea of art houses existing. So that also is a a reason for it to, uh, to rank highly on my list. Okay. Grand finale. Number Number two. We're going to know. Oh, that's right. I got to get your two first. And then, so I get to to my own drum roll. Number two, uh, no surprise, bones and all. Luca Guadagnino, (laughs) who took a horror tale and directed a perfectly calibrated romantic road movie uh, starring Timothy Chalamet and Taylor Russell. And he um, doesn't miss a trick, you know, from all the supporting characters to the romance to the horror. Uh, I just think this movie was perfect. So uh, there it is. Interesting. I know this was your favorite movie of the year at some point. So I'm, now I'm really curious about your number one. But number two is a pretty good pretty good spot to have. I mean, it's a, it's a cool movie. I can't wait to watch it again. And I love, uh, again, I've said it before, Mark Rylance. <laughs> My God, he's a trip. That's one that should be talked about more. And Michael Stolberg. Yeah, <laughs> Michael Stolberg and, and uh, David, David Gordon Green. Yeah, what a yeah. pairing! <laughs> well, number one is, in my estimation, the great superhero movie of the year, and uh, the superhero is Nan Golden. All the Beauty and the Bloodshed is just like such an uh, extraordinary feat in terms of what it's doing, filmmaking wise, juggling her story as an artist in the past as well as her activism in the present. I find that combination to be just so profound because it's really hard to kind of make the case for an, an artist activist and it, that that's become almost, almost like a cliche in a way and I think this movie does a really good job of authenticating that emotionally while also making the the the, her own case against the Sacklers and showing how it's possible and defensible to take down, you know, billionaire power structures through this kind of insurgent activism and, and, and find success doing it. It's, it's thrilling. And I, and I've been a fan of the way that Poitras uses like almost like the thriller kind of structure to her movies uh, since at least it is in four um, in terms of how that, that works. It's okay to make it feel like it's, not just a documentary, but something that's that's um, you know almost like a like has like yeah. a blockbuster language to it, and, and she does that here. The Sacklers, you're following that activism, that takedown, success of it. But yeah, I wouldn't it's call it a thriller. Exactly. It, it's gripping. I mean, these die-ins, okay. you know, the 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 kind of building up to the the showdown that she has with them. I mean, it's it, it's tragic in parts, but it's also it's also unnerving i mean there are moments where people are, are afraid for their lives they're being tailed at, at night and so forth and and um and i just think you know the way in which it does that in tandem with also explaining her as an artist is just so gratifying 
No, it's yeah. a great movie. It's a number one, I baby. Said, it was my best documentary. Um, uh, and I, I, I applaud it. I totally do. But I, I think it transcends what... documentary. I mean, you know, I always feel like these, these boundaries are porous. So that's, I, I felt like a great example of that as was Beba, well, of course. What she did that was so extraordinary was to weave the past and the present, the artist and the activism together. There were all these different threads and she dug and dug and dug and got into Nangold and got into her past and her underlying psychology really. And uh, really- 100%. Uh, really, so the portrayal of her is so much more complicated and, and detailed than, than we would ever expect from this kind of film. And that's what, yep. that's why she's a great filmmaker. Yep. Um, my number one is The Banshees of Inna Sharon. Hmm. That's my number one. Martin McDonough creates a heightened tragedy of about friendship, loss, and aging. And Colin Farrell and, and Brendan Gleeson are just extraordinary in it. And Farrell, they're heartbreaking. They're heartbreaking. You're right. It's a very sad, very bleak, uh, very beautiful movie. And um, a lot more difficult to pull off what he did, I think, than people might realize, McDonough. Yeah. There's yeah, a lot of production design. There's a lot yeah. of artful uh, staging of the uh, the the landscape, and and uh, and and the the there's this one scene with Colin Farrell um, after he's been beat up, and you know he's not even speaking to Brendan Gleeson, and yet his old friend steps up and helps him out. And I, bring, yeah. I, I completely lose it every time I right. think about it. Pats that. him on the back. Yeah, yes, yeah. and helps him out. So that is, you know, obviously he still cares about him. That's right. not the issue. It's that he wants to take his time to create art. And, right. and he fucks it up. He doesn't do what he should do, but he right. he tries. And so there's so many levels to this, to this tragedy uh, that um, I think that it's going to end. I think Colin Farrell could end up winning an Oscar for it. Interesting. I mean, I heard that argument, and then I and then I heard that the Brendan Fraser argument was gaining traction again, and now I don't know what to believe or what reality well, we're in anymore. We're watching the different movies release their trailers, open in theaters, get reviewed again. You know, part of what's going on with women talking is that it hasn't opened yet. Yeah, so we're living in the future, in the, the past. The year, so it changes the dynamic. Yeah, you're like. It's true. It's like you're living in the future and the past. Like you're living in the past of where these movies launched when you first saw them, maybe at the festival, but then also the future where you're predicting what's going to happen when they land. And right now they're kind of in limbo. Sometimes it's a promotion. Um, it's 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 a it's a it's a boost. And but, other times it can be a setback. Yeah, but Banshees did open already, that. and it's done Banshees is pretty set. well. We're not yeah. worried about Banshees, so. and we're not even worried about Fablemans, which I didn't put on my list, but I'm very fond of it. Um, even though I think it's just a very strange movie, um, but, but we're, you know, Fablemans is, and all these films are already getting out there on PVOD and, and they're going to make their money that way. So there are, there is an optimistic spin in all of this, in spite of what some people are saying about the state of the well, industry. Well, the box office is hurting for <laughs> our films. There's no question about that. No the question about it. This is the mainstay of that. And you have to create some kind of real event like everything everywhere to yep. get people in. But that appealed to a younger audience. We have it to happened. remember that. Yeah. And there's going to be more. We talked about the Sundance lineup next year. People are going to be digging around for this stuff. You know, A24 and other companies like that have stuff in the pipeline that they're already kind of excited about. So, you know, the the, the theatrical experiment will continue. It's like you can't just unplug this sort of thing and it's gone overnight. 
So well, we're hope obviously after the whatever winter surge we're going to be dealing with, COVID will subside and more people will go back to theaters. Yeah, there's all that too. Well, round and round we go. It's always a pleasure, and to go through our lists and, and find out that we actually agree about a fair amount of stuff. There, there was a little bit of overlap. An amount, uh, enough. That much this year, though. Actually. You got to see funny pages in Apollo uh, ten, and ten and a half. Then we can really right. talk. All well, right. next week will be our last uh, episode of the year, so we're gonna bring the goods and look ahead to 2023 with some fun stuff so i look forward to that until then rest easy and i'll see you soon 2022 a little bit ah yes that old thing (laughs) talk to you soon bye lucky land casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky lucky in line at the deli i guess aha in my dentist's office More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.